All right, Galatians 4, 21 through 31 tonight. So we're just going to look at a short passage tonight. And I just want to remind you, I know Alan is, is a really gifted teacher, so I'm sure he did a great job of, of explaining verses 8 through 20. But I just wanted to remind you, if you needed to sum up Galatians in one sentence, my one sentence summary is, Galatians is about freedom from bad religion. And that's one of the reasons why this book of the Bible, this book of the New Testament is so hard for a lot of Christians to get their minds wrapped around because we're used to thinking in terms of, well, the world is bad, but the church is good. And in many cases, thank God, the church is good. But there are dangers from within the church that in their own way are as perilous, as hazardous, as dangerous as anything you'll meet in the world, and even more so because you trust it, because it's within the church, because it has the ring of truth, because it comes wrapped in a religious package. So that's the, the, the summary, the reminder of what this book is about. Now, what, is, what are these 10 or 11 verses about? I'll just start this way. When I was a kid, I loved storytelling preachers. Now, the two pastors I had growing up were not storytellers, really. Good men, but not storytellers. So I always enjoyed in the summer or spring when we had revivals, some years we would get a storytelling revival preacher. And boy, I'd love that. I'd just go home and we'd tell and retell the stories to each other. You know, I, I've been in church my whole life, so I've heard hundreds, maybe even thousands of sermons, if you count the ones I've heard on radio and podcasts, and I can remember very few points. Preachers are so big on their points. You know, I've got, I've got these three points, and I need to word it just right. I'm, I do the same thing, and, and we don't remember most of those points, but I remember so many stories that were told by preachers down through the years. There's a reason why Jesus used parables. Jesus used parables for really two reasons. Uh, he said it's because the people whose minds are shut, whose hearts are stubborn, they're going to think this is foolishness and walk away. But the flip side of that is people whose hearts are open, who want to know the truth, they'll hear those stories, the parables, and they'll remember them in a way that they wouldn't remember just a, a, a bold statement just a, a stated uh, piece of truth. They'll remember the story of uh, the, the prodigal son. They'll remember the story of the Good Samaritan and so forth. Now, as Paul wraps up this middle section of Galatians, again, just for review, the first two chapters are Paul's autobiography and saying, this is how I know my gospel is true. This is how I came to know the truth about Jesus. And the middle two chapters, chapters three and four, are the theological argument that says the gospel is one thing, religion is another, stick with the gospel, not with the law. And then next week, we'll, we'll get into chapters five and six that talk about the practical side, how to live out freedom in the gospel. But he's wrapping up this middle section about his theological argument by reminding the Galatians of a story they already knew. Now, these were primarily Gentile Christians, but if you were a Christian for any time at all, you heard the stories of the Old Testament. Paul's going to remind them of a story from the Old Testament that they already knew as a way of telling them some spiritual truth. So I'll tell you the story in a moment, but let's start with verse 21 of chapter 4. And I'm reading out of the English Standard Version for those of you that aren't usually here. This is your first time here. Um, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, 
Do you not listen to the law? By the way, law there, we, hear, we see that word law and we think of rules. And yes, there are rules in the Old Testament, but the law was the term that they called the Torah, the first five books of the, of the Old Testament. So you think you want to be under the law, you don't even listen to it, is what Paul's saying. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through a promise. Now, I probably don't need to do this for all of you, but for some of you, I might need to give you a review of what he's talking about. So Abraham, of course, was the father of the Jewish race. The, the, the man God plucked out of the city of Ur at the age of 75 and said, I'm going to make you a great nation. And Abraham said, well, that's interesting because I don't have any kids and my wife can't have any kids. And God said, even so, I'm going to do it. And then 25 years later, along comes Isaac, the child of the promise. That's the shorthand version right? The real story is that after a while, after a while, there was no baby. It had been years. God had promised. Can you imagine how excited? I mean, if those of you who are parents, you know how excited you were when your first child came along. Uh, when you first found out you or your wife was expecting and, and you just couldn't wait until that baby came. Well, think about poor Abraham and Sarah. In a world where everybody was measured by how many kids they had, they had none. And suddenly this, this God who they didn't know before shows up and says, you're going to have children. And then the years pass and all that excitement starts to go away. And they start to wonder, did I dream that? That vision with God? Is that what's going on? And Sarah, of course, as a woman, this was her chance. She, she didn't understand why God wasn't fulfilling his promise. And so together they came up with an idea. And that was, well, we've got this slave girl, this Egyptian slave girl, Hagar, and uh, let's just go ahead and I'll let you have a baby with her. Now, today we recognize that as horrible, not just in terms of adultery, but in terms of you don't treat someone like that. I mean, Hagar had no decision in that. That's, that's, this just shows the, the lack of humanity in the ancient world, especially if you were a slave. Um, but in those days, it was seen as, well, she's our property. We can do what we want. And so they did. Um, and a, a child was born from that union, a child named Ishmael. And Ishmael was Abraham's only son for 13 years. And then along came the child of the promise, Isaac. And so those, that's the story that Paul is reminding them of. Now, we've always heard, or at least I have, and you know, I mentioned all those sermons I've heard. I don't know how many times I've heard a sermon about Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar or a Bible study. And the point of it is, don't get ahead of God. Wait on the Lord. He's got his timing is right. Don't, don't try to run out where he's not. And that's a, that is a, a valid point. And I think it's, it's a good application to that story. But Paul uses this story in a completely different way. Paul uses this story as an allegory where every character, the, the characters in the story represent something spiritual. Let me just say, Paul can do that because he's an apostle. You and I are not. Okay. So don't try to interpret the Bible that way. Paul can because he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We're not. But here's what Paul comes up with. Paul says, okay, so, oh, oh and by the way, by the way, uh, why does Paul use this story out of all the stories in the Old Testament? Well, we don't know this, but because the people who came from Jerusalem and got the Galatians all stirred up, because they were Jewish, because they were proud of their Judaism, and because they wanted the Galatian Christians to become Jewish by conversion so they could call them brothers, 
I'm sure they kept using the story of Abraham. Don't you want to be sons and daughters of Abraham like us? And so Paul uses that story to say, okay, they think they're Isaac, but they're really Ishmael. So what he does is he says, Ishmael is the child of a slave. And Isaac is the child of a free woman. One is born through natural means, according to the flesh. If you don't know what that means, ask your mother. The other was obviously a miracle baby. No, no child gets conceived when, when dad is 100 and mom's 90 unless God actively intervenes. So keep those things in mind. Now here's where the, the, the allegory comes in. Verse 24. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. You read the Old Testament, you know that there's, there's a series of covenants, right? There's the covenant with Abraham, or the covenant with Adam, for that matter. The covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, with Moses, and then with David. These are two covenants, he says. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. So he says that, that Hagar represents the old covenant that Moses got when he walked up to the top of Mount Sinai during the Exodus and got the words of the law. And came down and said, okay, Israel, we're a nation, we're a people. As long as we follow this law, then God will bless us and we'll be the most blessed nation on earth and we'll be a kingdom of priests. And they didn't do it. They couldn't do it. No people could. That's what Hagar represents. He says she corresponds to the present Jerusalem. In other words, she's modern day Judaism. The, the religion that Paul came out of in order to come to faith in Jesus Christ a religion that has so much truth about it, everything except the saving truth of the gospel. But, he says, verse 26, but the Jerusalem above is free. There's another Jerusalem. We know this also from Revelation, from Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem in heaven. He says, the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than, the, of the, than those of the one who has a husband. So the second half of the allegory is Sarah. She's a new covenant. This is not language that Paul invented. It goes all the way back to Jeremiah. There's going to be a new covenant. He says, Sarah represents the fact that God made a new way for people to get to him, not through Mount Sinai, not through the law, but through a promise, a promise of grace. And in the same way, Isaac wasn't natural born in the sense that it took an intervention of God, not mere biology. In the same way, the salvation we have through this new covenant isn't through our efforts anymore. It's through grace. It's through a miracle of God. This is one way to look at it. Your salvation, the fact that you are a child of God through, through Jesus Christ is as much a miracle as a baby being born to a 100-year-old and a 90-year-old. And we don't think of it that way. But if you don't think of it that way, you need to stop and reverse because you're, you're slipping into legalism again. And Well, look what I've done with myself. Well, that's not the case. Um, she corresponds to the new Jerusalem, the people of Christ. And then in verse 27, which we just read, he quotes from Isaiah 54, 1. Again, the apostles, like Paul, find some interesting things to do with the scriptures. No modern day preacher would ever think to take this verse and apply it to this concept. 
the, the verse basically says, rejoice, barren woman, because someday your children will be more than the woman who is fertile. You're going to have more children. You're going to have more gladness. God's going to think of you. And, and you know, on, on one hand, that is a common theme in the Old Testament, isn't it? of the barren woman and God looking down on her. You're talking about uh, Sarah. You're talking about Rachel. You're talking about uh, 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 the wife of, or the mother of Samson. You're talking about Hannah. Uh, who am I missing? Anybody? But yeah, I mean, it's a common theme that comes up and up, over and over again. But consider this. That verse, Isaiah 54.1, originally, the original context was Israel was in exile. They'd lost their land. They're living in Babylon if they're like every other people, they're going to cease to exist. God writes to them in, through Isaiah and says, don't worry. You're going, to, you're going to get back more than you lost. Your latter days will be better than your, your new ones. And when you think about it, Sarah, even though she was barren, ended up producing more children than Hagar. Because the, the testimony of the New Testament, in Galatians especially, is it's not just the Jews that come from Sarah. It's everybody who came to faith in Christ, no matter what their race, Jew, Gentile, Arab, no matter what, they are sons and daughters of Sarah and Abraham. And so in, in the end, she produced more children, even though she was barren. Paul's point, this is, this is really great. I love this. Paul's point is, it's not enough to say God is my father. The question is, who is your mother? Is your mother the, the law? You expect the law to deliver you into the family of God? Do you expect mere religion and your, your obedience to certain rules and your morality and your religiosity, do you expect that to impress God? Is that your, your resume that you're going to hand to the Lord and, and expect Him to bring you in? Well, you're going to be disappointed. But if your mother is grace, if your mother is, I need a miracle or I can't be saved. If your, if your, if your mother is I, all I know is I'm a sinner and I need a Savior, then you will be saved. No one, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, according to the book of Romans. So that's the point Paul's making. Now he applies it in verse 28. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. What's he talking about there? So another story in that text, uh, Ishmael, uh, when, when uh, Isaac was weaned, so you know, around two or three years old, uh, Sarah caught Ishmael, who's now 16 or 17, mocking her little boy. And it made her so mad, she, she made them you know, chase off Ishmael and, and his mother, Hagar, and just you know, run him out of town. Uh, but the point is, Ishmael persecuted Isaac, probably out of jealousy. And Paul says, that's what Paul's referring to in verse 28. At the time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the, to the spirit. So also it is now. You shouldn't be surprised that my fellow Jewish Christians are persecuting you and telling you you're not good enough. It's always been this way. People whose mother is the law hate people whose mother is grace. They persecute you because they can't accept the, the salvation that, that is real. Um, 
So he says, don't be surprised at that. And then he says in verse 30, but what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. That's a quote from Sarah in, uh, in, in Genesis 21. And I got to say, that whole story is not Sarah's best moment, is it? But it's interesting how Paul takes it and twists the story in such a way to say, okay, I'm not excusing what Abraham and Sarah did. I'm just showing you in this situation, in your life, you are legitimate. You are children of the promise. You are chosen by God because you came to him through grace. And then in verse 31, he says, so brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. And it's, it's basically a slam dunk right there. Paul's saying, yeah, don't worry about these people who came and told you you don't fit. They're the ones who don't fit, no matter what their biology might be. So three points of application. Like Isaac, number one, like Isaac, we're all children of promise. In other words, we need to remember and never forget we didn't earn our place. Our salvation is a miracle. And it ought to continually, it ought to continually astonish you. Now, please understand what I'm saying when I say that. I don't mean that God wants you to wallow in guilt and shame and just go, I just can't believe that God would save someone as dirty and awful as me. God, he's your, you're his child. He wants you to, to love who he's made you. But at the same time, you should continually look back and say, as righteous as he is, and with all that I've done, that he could not just accept me, but love me. Because remember, your salvation is not a case of a, a, a merciful king forgiving a guilty subject. It is that, but it's so much more. If he just said, okay, not guilty, and sent you on your way, that would be enough to, to be wonderful. But no, he brings you in, and he sanctifies you, and he makes you his own, and over time, he teaches you how to live as his child. It is a miracle, and if you ever get to where that doesn't just take your breath away, then that's the time to pray and ask God to revive your heart. And we do get to that point as Christians. We do get to that point where we lose the awe of our salvation. And in those moments, we need to recognize and say, Lord, I've, I've become too proud. I've become too complacent. So that's the first application. We are, we are walking miracles as children of God. Secondly, we can't expect persecution. Jesus said it. If they hated me, they will hate you as well. The surprising thing, Jesus didn't necessarily say this, but Paul implies it here, is that we can expect persecution from inside the church as well as outside. In fact, in fact, when you look down through biblical and church history, it's surprising how much of the persecution comes from within the world of belief in God and not from outside. Jesus ultimately was crucified by people who didn't believe in God, but only because his own people delivered him up. The Romans had no interest in Jesus. His enemies within Judaism manipulated the system so that he could be crucified. It was his own people. It wasn't the, the unbelievers. In the same way, Paul, the Romans had no interest in Paul, but his own people pursued him, criticized him, uh, persecuted him terribly, and tried their best to kill him. When you look at church history, it's really sad 
Because we, we talk about Christian martyrs and oh, what brave men and women, and they were. But it's really sad when you look down the list of people who've died for their faith, how many of them died at the hands of the church. And yes, Protestants, we can point to the Catholic Church, and yes, they, you know, Bloody Mary in England put, put you know, telling how many Protestants to death, and Spanish Inquisition, and all these other, but there are also stories of Protestants killing Protestants, and Protestants killing Catholics. It's, it's not one way. Uh, for goodness sakes, the Anglican Church used to throw our Baptist forebears in the river, bound hand and foot, and say, you want water? We'll swim. And, you know, we are capable of so much cruelty to one another. And, and so we need to understand that some of the hardest treatment you're going to get as a Christian, and hopefully none of it's going to be violent like that, is going to be from fellow believers. And some of you know what I'm talking about. If you've ever been uh, in any position of leadership in a church, you know the, the cruelty that you can sometimes expect. Um, I, I saw this when I was a, a new pastor, and y'all know um, I was pastoring the church I grew up in. There was a young lady my age, and she decided she wanted to be the VBS director. My mom had always been a VBS director, so my mom was so glad to let somebody else do it. And this young woman just did a bang-up job. It was the best VBS that church ever had. But there were a few little people in the church that didn't like how much money got spent. And she said, I'm never doing it again. It, it, it hurts when you try to serve the Lord and you get nothing but criticism. And that's not me talking about me, because I get way more encouragement than criticism in my job. Thank you all for that. It's just to say, expect that serving the Lord won't be easy. And the hard part about it is sometimes that criticism will come from people you think should be on your side. The third thing. The third application, and that's, that's what that quote in verse 30 is about. Throw out bad religion. You have to confront it. When Paul, quotes script, when Paul quotes Sarah saying, cast out the slave woman and her son, because he will not inherit, that's Paul's way of saying, when you see this legalism arise in your church, when you see uh, religion that maybe speaks the truth, maybe has the veneer of righteousness because it's 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 talking about actual Christian doctrine, and it seems really godly because, hey, you know, they're really strict. You know, they, they tell the, those women how long their skirts need to be, and they tell those young men, you know, what kind, how long their hair can be, and they tell, they tell everybody what TV shows they can watch and, and how much they can spend and, and what sorts of things they can eat and drink, and we think, boy, they're really serious about the Lord. And Paul says, no, they're slipping back into the legalism that must be rejected. Now, next week we're going to get into, that doesn't mean there's no rules at all. It just means when there's no grace, when there's no humility, when there's no forgiveness, it must be rejected. Now, I do need to say this before I close, before I get to the story I'm going to tell at the end. Back to, back to Sarah and Hagar. In case, you, in case it bothers you how she was treated, it should. It bothered God too. So one of the beautiful things about that story is uh, Sarah got mad at Hagar and ran her off twice. The first time she went away and God came to her in the wilderness. One of the most beautiful little known stories in the book of Genesis, God comes to this Egyptian slave girl and speaks to her and tells her, you go back home, I'm going to take care of you. And Hagar is so astonished that the God of the universe would speak to her, a slave, that she gives him a new name 
It's El Roy in Hebrew, which means the God who sees me. And there's a whole lot of people in the world today who need to know that that's who God is. Nobody else pays attention to me. Well, God does. God sees you. He is the God who sees. The second time, in this, what verse 30 quotes, when he sends, when she sends Hagar and, and teenaged Ishmael away, again, she thinks, well, we're just going to die out here. And God comes to her and says, don't worry, Ishmael will be a great nation too. And he is. Uh, so God pays attention to the ones that get mistreated. That's the alternate story, the, the flip side of, of the story of Sarah and Hagar. Now, I just want to close with this. So uh, I grew up at Hope Baptist Church out in the little community of Hope in, in the greater Yoakum area. So um, all there is in Hope is a Methodist church, a Baptist church, and a little schoolhouse in between. So I grew up in that little Baptist church. My grandfather was chairman of the deacons. My mom was president of the WMU, you know, that kind of thing. Um, as my granddad, my grandfather got older and Alzheimer's kind of took over, he, he got to the point where he didn't know much was going on now, but he could remember stories from the past. And he would tell the same stories over and over again. He, he went through a period of time where he was angry all the time. And it just didn't take him anything, it didn't take anything for him to just get started on some old story and it would make him angry. When this guy did this to me and such and such, and such he'd never been that way before. But one story he kept coming back to that just plagued him Back in the 50s, um, Hope Baptist actually had a church split. A church that small having a split is worse than a church this size having a split. Not that it's ever good. It split because they had a pastor who showed up who decided uh, that he knew the rules. For instance, eating on church property was a sin. Now, my granddad, my grandfather... Uh, was the de facto youth minister. And he used to buy big crates of, I mean, the Dr. Pepper man came to his house, right? Gave him big crates of Dr. Pepper and he'd go to the store and buy candy bars and other treats and he'd have the kids over and they'd read the Bible and they'd play volleyball and the preacher told him, you can't do that. Eating on church grounds is a sin. I don't know where he came up with that. But it literally split the church. Can you imagine? Something like that. And so... In his latter years, when he couldn't remember much of anything, my grandpa's mind kept going back to that wound of seeing people he loved and he'd grown up with and gone to church with suddenly say, well, I can't, I can't worship with you anymore because uh, we, have a, we have a different way. Not based on gospel, not based on grace, just based on, I think I know better than God. And ultimately, that's what bad religion is. It's, okay, God gave us something good. I think I can go one better. Watch out for it. Watch out for it. It is a dangerous and damaging thing. And the worst part of it is it looks like the truth. So let's pray for wisdom and pray that that will never happen here. Lord, thank you for uh, your truth. Your truth actually sets us free. I pray, Lord, that as we continue through Galatians, we would see what that means and that it doesn't mean we can do anything we want to do. I pray, Lord, also that you would grant us wisdom, that we would be on the lookout for this uh, legalism that just creeps in so sneakily to uh, Christian churches. And I pray that we would recognize it for what it is, that we would always be gracious, but that we would never be taken for a ride, and that we would never lose the truth of the gospel. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.